right, folks, we are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show, if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitik.com slash donate. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. For the month of January, we're bringing you independent voices from the podcasting world in our series, Our Body Politic Presents. Each week, you'll hear a different show take us on a journey of both news and information and narrative sound. This week, we're featuring the work of As She Rises, a podcast from Wonder Media Network that opens up space to breathe through the trauma of the climate crisis. It's infused with poetry as well as science and history, and host and producer Grace Lynch focuses on the journeys of indigenous women and women of color across the United States from Hawaii to Minnesota. We start with an excerpt of the very first episode of As She Rises, centered on Louisiana, the bayou. You ready? Come on. I'm okay. I'm okay. No, show me. Come on. I'm Wait okay. a minute. You're in New Orleans. Come on, darling. You drop. The story survived upstream of me. This. The river bloated, turned outward on itself. A breakthrough wide, a more natural state. Forget the walls, the artificial banks, setting a thin route south into the gulf. River found its mouth lacking made itself big to accommodate the surge. Water by volume, water by the ton for miles, fills its container, won't be kept out. I grew up at the base of the Salish Sea in Olympia, Washington. Instead of running around lawns or bicycling on sidewalks, I spent my childhood roaming the tidal flats. Recently when I was home, I was standing out in the water with my dad, looking down at the sand dollars at my feet, and he said, you know, Grace, I haven't seen a starfish here in years. It almost sounded like a line from a cheesy horror film, a la... She's been dead for a thousand years, or something like that. But unfortunately, climate change and its far-reaching tentacles are far from fiction. Even in my relatively short lifetime, I've seen climate change transform my home. From the changing ecosystem on the tidal flats to severe weather patterns, We all heard about the crushing heat wave that swept across the Pacific Northwest this summer. It's estimated that nearly a billion small sea creatures were killed on the beaches, scorched under the heat dome. The summer prior, 
You couldn't even see across the bay due to smoke from nearby wildfires. And the winter storms are longer and wetter than ever before. In a state known for rain, this past January was the third wettest month on record. My parents' home faces directly into the weather. The winter winds and diagonal rain swell right up to their windows. After another long winter, my parents called to tell me that they were selling my childhood home. Tired of fighting with Mother Nature, they're moving on and relocating. The idea that anyone is immune to climate change is laughable. But if you're at all like me, you might not have chosen to look all that closely. Whenever climate change comes up in conversation, I immediately get overwhelmed. Between the doomsday scenarios and all the numbers and statistics being pushed on you, it's no wonder some of us aren't prioritizing this issue in the way that we should, myself included. So I figured I'd try and take a different approach to the conversation. I thought about what could help build pathways to empathy. For me, that's stories of people who are fighting to preserve their home, just trying to save their corner of the planet. I might not know how to act in the face of global warming, but I can advocate to protect the boundary waters in Minnesota. Through poetry, I can begin to empathize with those looking at an unrecognizable Alaska. I can raise awareness of the reforestation efforts in Puerto Rico. And in doing so, perhaps I can find a little bit of hope. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is As She Rises. We're going to try and personalize the elusive magnitude of climate change. This series will explore the vast United States through the experiences of local climate activists and poets. Today, we're in New Orleans, Louisiana. The poet you heard from at the top of the show is Jerrica Martian, reading from her collection, Swole. I wanted to talk to Jerrica because while her poetry speaks to her experience in Hurricane Katrina, it also touches on broader themes, like how these climate events shape our concept of time. I came to New Orleans in 2001 with my two parents. We're immigrants from the Philippines. Thinking about climate change is a part of being in a town like this. You feel it in the summertime, where every summer feels like the hottest summer on record. It's hard not to think about your body at all times in this city. You just feel everything. In terms of Hurricane Katrina, it's how we tell time. People say, before the storm and after the storm. Before the storm, things were like this, or my home was like this, or I had this many pairs of shoes. Talking about the things that, that they had and then the things that they lost. Not so much in terms of loss, but in terms of the people we were before Katrina. I remember whistling. The wind had gotten so violent that it was 
shuddering through my house, and I could hear it whistling through the cracks in the house, and it was the eeriest sound. There had been a lot of pine trees, like young pine trees, in my parents' backyard, and I could hear them snapping. Is similar to the sound of regular pencils snapping, except a thousand times larger, and your home and your body is so close to those falling trees. I hear the voice of Garland Robinette. Stay with us. We're your lighthouse, gang, in this moment of darkness. When we had lost power, his radio show was the only radio show on, and I remember people calling in to his radio show, trying to piece out what was going on. When you were in the storm or you were in the city, we had no clue what was happening. I do think about leaving New Orleans as an exercise, but it's just an exercise. never been serious about it. I'm fully committed to staying here for as long as it'll let me stay here. I love how Jerrica phrases that, for as long as it'll let me stay here. Because more and more, it's not up to us. And when major storms do happen, it can mean permanent dislocation. After Katrina, people didn't come back. Arguably the hardest hit region of the city was the Lower Ninth Ward. Only a third of its residents returned. I want to introduce you to someone who did come back to Louisiana. Colette Pichon Battle. She's a climate justice advocate founder and executive director of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. She was living outside of her home state when Katrina hit. In the aftermath, she came back to help. She's been there ever since. The climate change conversation and the way that science and statistics really frame it is good but inadequate and it did not describe what I was experiencing the door that I walked through in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. When I looked at climate disaster recovery what I saw was racial discrimination. When I looked at federal and state and local policies that force people to choose between their livelihood and moving to another place that discriminate and and brought lawsuits for years. I understood climate change, not through science, but through the discriminatory practices that will necessarily occur in our current systems as we have more and more climate impacts. The frontline people want to know What's going to happen the next storm comes? Not are you going to stop the water, but are we going to be able to rebuild? Are we going to be able to come back? Who's going to try to take our land? Who's going to be erased? Who's going to be allowed to die? 
That was an excerpt from the episode The Bayou from the podcast As She Rises by Wonder Media Network. We'll return with more, this time from Stories in Oklahoma. Welcome back to Our Body Politic and our month-long series showcasing innovative podcasts, Our Body Politic Presents. We continue with more of Wonder Media Network's As She Rises. This time, host and producer Grace Lynch takes us to Oklahoma. As context, the 2020 Supreme Court decision, McGirt v. Oklahoma, affirmed tribal sovereignty. Justice Gorsuch wrote in the majority opinion, land reserved for the Creek Nation since the 19th century remains Indian country. But how that plays out in reality as the climate crisis accelerates is still very much in question. The McGirt case said that vast parts of Oklahoma remain Muscogee Nation tribal lands. Now that decision is shaking up who controls mining in the region and also potentially who has jurisdiction over violent crimes. The energy and resource questions are critical to understanding the issues here. For example, last year, the U.S. Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement made a decision. It would prevent the state of Oklahoma from exercising mining jurisdiction on Muscogee lands, giving that authority to the federal government. Now, a portion of As She Rises episode, The Plains. Okay, my name is Joy Harjo, and this is a poem, Speaking Tree which is in Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings. And it begins with a quote by the poet and novelist Sandra Cisneros. I had a beautiful dream I was dancing with a tree. Some things on this earth are unspeakable. Genealogy of the broken, a shy wind threading leaves after a massacre, or the smell of coffee and no one there. Some humans say trees are not sentient beings, but they do not understand poetry. Nor can they hear the singing of trees when they are fed by wind or water music, or hear their cries of anguish when they are broken and bereft. Now I am a woman longing to be a tree planted in a moist, dark earth between sunrise and sunset. I cannot walk through all realms. I carry a yearning I cannot bear alone in the dark. What shall I do with all this heartache? The deepest rooted dream of a tree is to walk, even just a little ways from the place next to the doorway, to the edge of the river of life and drink. I have heard trees talking long after the sun has gone down. Imagine what it would be like to dance close together in this land of water and knowledge, to drink deep what is undrinkable. In the U.S., Oklahoma doesn't usually come first in our collective scenic imagination. We think of starker landscapes, the coasts in opposition. But in the middle of this continent is a land full of wonders and layers. Ancient mountain ranges, broad expansive plains, savannas, woodlands, and mesas. The name Oklahoma is derived from the Choctaw Okla for people and Hama for red. Over the past year or so, since the major McGirt Supreme Court decision, media outlets have been saying half of Oklahoma is now recognized native land. But 
it's not really. At least not yet. That possibility is being threatened by the deeply embedded oil and gas industry and powers that won't readily respect tribal sovereignty because they never have. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is As She Rises. Joy Harjo, who you heard at the top of the show, is the country's first Indigenous Poet Laureate. She's now serving her third term. As we've noted throughout this series, Indigenous voices should be central to climate conversations. It's an uphill battle across the U.S., and Oklahoma is no exception. One person who has been fighting to have her voice heard for a long time is Casey Camp Hornick. She's an environmental ambassador, matriarch, and drumkeeper of the Ponca Nation of Oklahoma. Judy is my Ponca name. Uh, it's my true name. I live in the occupied territory of Oklahoma. My colonized name is Casey Camp Hornick. The infringement on tribal sovereignty and the disproportionate impact of environmental hazards on indigenous tribes isn't new. Then, in July of 2020, it seemed like things might finally change in Oklahoma. In the landmark McGirt versus Oklahoma case, the U.S. Supreme Court legally affirmed that most of the eastern half of Oklahoma was recognized Indian territory, primarily as it pertained to the Muscogee Creek Nation. This decision had far-reaching legal implications, including the recognition of tribal sovereignty over environmental lawmaking. That last point is crucial. By recognizing the land as reservation territory, the decision upended the state's prior authority over this area, which also just happens to be where 40% of Oklahoma's total monthly oil and gas is produced. It's an interesting concept, this idea of indigenous rights. And my brother Carter Camp was an astute scholar and leader of the American Indian movement when I was young. And when uh, self-determination came around and everybody bought in and said, whoopee, here we are, you know, exerting sovereignty again, he just kind of chuckled and he said, yep, we're as sovereign as they allow us to be, sis. Extractive industries in Oklahoma are causing real-time issues on the ground, literally shaking the foundations of the land. Man-made earthquakes plague Oklahoma. That's right. These earthquakes are not occurring naturally. Extracting oil and gas from the land produces a toxic byproduct called wastewater. To get rid of the wastewater, companies inject it underground in what are called disposal wells. These injections put stress on existing geologic fault lines or weakened shale. Oklahoma has experienced a 900-fold increase in earthquakes since 2008. In 2014, it was the most seismically active state in the lower 48. These earthquakes are shallow. 
these earthquakes are, as you said, man-made earthquakes. Could ever even imagine that we'd put those words together and that they would be saying something real, you know? But the largest man-made earthquake here was a 5.8. And literally, you hang on when they happen. I, I happened to be in bed at that time and the bed is shaking and rocking and things are flying off of the walls and it is terrifying. We're experiencing violent earthquakes, which of course is another terrifying thing if you live in the nexus of pipelines that we do. All the pipelines in the United States a majority of them end up here in Cushing, Oklahoma, and in Ponca City, North Central Oklahoma. And those are just under the surface of the earth. So when these violent earthquakes happen, we're terrified constantly of leaks and explosions that will happen. And then, of course, the fracking fluids and the tank batteries that contain all of the gases and things are leaking because of the earthquakes causing them to leak. And for those responsible for the wreckage of the landscape and health of her community, Casey isn't mincing words. The leaders of the, these extractive industry, they're mass murderers, and they need to be known as such. We need to start calling them out by name, each individual executive that's making the decisions to continue to do what they do instead of transitioning into renewable energies. They are murderers. They are sacrificing human life so that they could live in more comfort while the rest of us die. In 2020, Governor Stitt wrote a memo to Congress titled, One Oklahoma. It reveals how Stitt intends to strip the 39 federally recognized tribes in Oklahoma of sovereignty to create further room for oil and gas development. It was co-signed by the multi-billionaire Howard Hamm, who owns one of the nation's biggest independent oil companies and is also known as the godfather of fracking. The memo revolved around this idea that one Oklahoma can only exist if all Oklahomans are treated the same, regardless of race, gender, or affiliation. After listing out a bunch of principles, including one that stipulates all environmental regulations should remain the responsibility of the state, the One Oklahoma memo contains the following. Sovereignty. The state of Oklahoma supports, values, and embraces the culture and uniqueness of each of the tribes that resides within Oklahoma and supports the sovereignty of these tribes in a way that is consistent with these principles. In other words, you need to play by our rules. Or as Casey's brother put it, as sovereign as they'll allow us to be. The fight for indigenous sovereignty has never been more important for all humanity. It is no coincidence that more than 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity and intact forests are in indigenous hands. They are the original stewards and caretakers of our land, 
and are the leaders in showing us what it means to live in sustainable harmony with the planet. We knew how to exist without breaking the world around us, without committing suicide as humans are doing right now. And I think if one looks too hard underneath the veneer of what is called civilization and sees the oppression of the indigenous people, the continued killing fields that we live in because of the decisions made by their own federal government that are ongoing and not stopping, then they have to find a way. You know, they talk about reparations for our Black relatives, and we certainly understand that and that need and, and certainly feel as if that's due. But what are the reparations for us? How do my people, the Panka, be able to go back to our homelands where it's still healthy and clean and be able to breathe good air and plant our corn and have a place for our generations to continue? We deserve that. We need that. Or else it is one more species called the panka that won't exist. And right behind us is you and your children. I teared up when Casey said that last bit to me. Right behind us is you and your children. Now, I don't have children, but that's not really the point. It was a profoundly sobering moment. Casey also told me that the prospect of protecting land isn't an individual choice. It's more like a chain reaction. Continued efforts to silence Native voices. The open refusal to recognize a landmark victory in land reclamation in the name of One Oklahoma. These are patterns that make the knot of this history even tighter. It won't be easy to change the way these issues have echoed for 500 plus years. But every movement requires a community to turn the tide a community that understands the ripples at stake. And I could enumerate all of those things that has reduced my people down to just over 200 in the past. The smallpox, blankets, on and on. But we exist today because we are resilient. And those circular ways of understanding are not gone from us. We haven't forgotten You and all of your ancestors lived that same way once. And within your DNA, you're wanting to hear this message. That's why we're we're here, you and I together today. But knowing better and taking action will make all the difference in our tomorrows. We're never too late. The earth is purifying herself. She knows what she's doing. So let's do our best to do what we have to do to align human law with natural law. It's not that hard. Let's do it. The situation on the ground in Oklahoma is evolving. Just last week, 
Under the direction of Mayor G.T. Bynum, the city of Tulsa filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court. Its explicit request is to overturn the McGirt decision. The filing was made, unsurprisingly, without any warning to Oklahoma's tribal communities. Oklahoma is a heightened microcosm of the broader struggle for tribal sovereignty. Across the country, the U.S. government continues to deny treaties and restrict Native communities. Extractive industries continue to abuse and poison indigenous lands, literally shaking the foundation of the earth. In addition to staying up to date on the latest developments with the McGirt decision in Oklahoma, I encourage you to look at the state of tribal sovereignty closest to your own home, because returning land to indigenous people is imperative everywhere for the survival of all of us. So as the world turns its attention to the power players at COP26, it's important that we don't lose sight of the communities that have actually demonstrated the ability to successfully cohabitate with the natural world for over thousands of years. There are organizations you can support that are working to protect tribal sovereignty and promote indigenous land practices. One that Casey is intimately involved with is Movement Rights, which you can find at movementrights.org. To further immerse yourself, I also encourage you to check out one of Joy's nine books of poetry or her memoir that came out last month titled Poet Warrior. You can find these, along with her music and more, at joyharjo.com. That was a portion of The Plains, an episode of the podcast As She Rises from Wonder Media Network. Grace Lynch is the host, creator, and producer. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. The show is produced by Lindsay Cradwell and Liz Smith. Their managing producer is Emily Rudder. Editorial support from Ali Tejeda and Carmen Borca Carrillo. As She Rises centers the voices of indigenous women and women of color facing the climate crisis and also highlights poetry as a bridge between the science and politics of climate and the lived experiences in our bodies, souls, and hearts. Other episodes come from regions including the Alaskan tundra and the fire zones in Northern California, which use prescribed burns to work with the ecosystem as opposed to the raging fires of today. You can subscribe to As She Rises to hear about these stories and more wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we'll feature content from a different podcast. Please join us. You're listening to Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. Joining me this week is Our Body Politic contributor Tiffany Jeffers, associate professor of law at Georgetown University. Hey, Tiffany. Hi, Farai. And contributor Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th. Hi, Aaron. Farai, new year, new me, same virus. <laughs> hey, it is bringing all of my people down, just like it brought me down last month. Now, Aaron, we are we are going all in on Georgia, and it's only fitting that as an Atlanta native that you take the lead. 
Well, okay, scoot over. I'll hop in the driver's seat. Get in, losers. We're going to talk about elections. Sounds good. Okay, so this week, President Biden and Vice President Harris traveled down to my hometown of Atlanta to deliver this major speech on voting rights. And after months of President Biden doing this kind of will he or won't he dance, uh, he called on the Senate to change the filibuster rules in this speech. Let's listen to some of that. Will we choose democracy over autocracy, light over shadows, justice over injustice? I know where I stand. And the question is, where will the institution of the United States Senate stand? Okay, so now we do know where President Biden stands, uh, but some voting rights advocates said that, frankly, time for action on this has long passed. Farai, how do you think that President Biden's speech was received? You know, it's it's an action speak louder than words moment. And there have been a lot of good analyses, including one coming out of the Brennan Center, showing that voting rights has really broken across partisan lines historically. So this whole idea of seeking bipartisanship as a top-level outcome of voting rights does not have historical precedent, and it do- it doesn't look like it's going to have a precedent now. And now the president and the vice president are championing strategies that voting rights advocates have been saying they should have been championing a year ago, right after the insurrection. Right after the insurrection might have been a great time to say that we simply cannot become a country without secure voting law. And a lot of advocates just basically boycotted the speech and said, you know, good luck with that. You really just have not been delivering the payload. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I was actually at the last major voting rights speech that President Biden gave in Philadelphia, and there were certainly so many um, important Black organizers, dignitaries, um, folks uh, who were at the state and federal uh, level who were, you know, prominent Democrats sat there, listened to him give a very fiery speech on voting rights. And then, you know, last summer, nothing happened. And so we know that that these state legislatures continue to be on the march, passing legislation that is going to make it harder uh, for those very folks that turned out in record numbers in 2020. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that among the groups that stayed away was the Asian American Advocacy Fund, which joined a lot of Black-led groups like the Black Voters Matter Fund. And it's just another example of kind of the New Georgia Coalition coming together, in this case, to essentially rebuke the president. Yeah. And and look, those folks did exactly what they were asked to do in 2020, right? They got uh, record turnout among uh, that coalition in the middle of a pandemic up against voter suppression. They did whatever it took uh, to, to get people out to the polls to deliver Democratic victory in Georgia for the first time in a generation. And so they are now saying it's time for Democrats at the federal level to really put it all on the line to protect them. Uh, and, and they really are not accepting anything less than, than their full effort on that. Give us a rundown of what's really in play in Georgia right now. Well, it, the, it, the nexus is real. So first, Georgia is one of 19 states to pass restrictive voting laws since the 2020 election. Second, the governor, Brian Kemp, signed a new redistricting map into law in December. And third, voting rights groups are now suing, alleging that that map denies representation to black communities. And the question of gerrymandering is also linked to a Supreme Court decision, which uh, Professor Jeffers would know a lot more about, that, that kind of looked, you know, 
know, looked at the intent of the gerrymandering. And so it's basically if it's if it's racially gerrymandered, my understanding is that it's not necessarily struck unless it's proven that that was the intent. But I, I'd love to know more. Uh, so, Farai, you brought up Professor Jeffers. Uh, we're going to ask a lawyer now. Tiffany, I mean, talk about the impact that this federal voting rights legislation could potentially have on places like Georgia and the voters that stand to be disenfranchised. So there's so much good content that you all have already discussed. And I wanted to circle back to one thing before jumping into uh, the federal legislation that we're waiting for right now. And that was talking specifically, Farai, when you mentioned Black bodies being denied the right to vote. I was reading through one of the cases that's been filed in Georgia, and they point out the statistic in um, their petition about how people of color, BIPOC people, that population is going to soon outnumber the white majority. And I think there's a crisis with white politicians right now when they recognize extending voting rights means extending actual power, whereas historically, it was just extending the right to maintain the status quo and keep white bodies in power. I think we're seeing a shift in who actually has the autonomy and ability to create laws and to govern. And that is what's causing this crisis of dissent from specifically Republicans and Manchin and Cinema. If you look at their districts, their fear is that they're going to lose essentially white power, not in the scope of white supremacy, but in the scope of white people controlling what black and brown bodies are able to do in this country. Um, and I think that's a really important point, because then if we segue from that idea into federal law, that was the entire point of the Voting Rights Act. When the Voting Rights Act was gutted most recently, taking the teeth out of that legislation, meaning states meaning the federal government now has to prove a state's racist intent, that's almost impossible to do. When you think about how do you prove that a state specifically intended to be racist, right? It's, right. it's just legally hard to do. States losing their autonomy to be racist is scary for Republicans pr particularly. Yeah. Well, listen, I don't have a seat in your class, Tiffany, but I absolutely learn something from you every single time we are on here. This is such important context. And you are listening to the Sippin' the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I'm Erin Haynes of the 19th with our contributor, Georgetown Law Professor Tiffany Jeffers and host Farai Chidea. If you're just tuning in, you can catch the whole conversation on our podcast. Just find Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, and Tiffany, you were making such a great point about, you know, intent versus impact. And that's really something that I've thought a lot about, uh, especially as it pertains to my home state, uh, because... Earlier this month, you had the three men that were convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery uh, being sentenced to life in prison, which made me think a lot just really about the question of bodily autonomy, you know, not just the freedom to make reproductive choices uh, or even, you know, the freedom to be able to cast your ballot safely and, and fairly on Election Day. But but also just the freedom to walk around and be safe or, or in Breonna Taylor's case, for example, the freedom to sleep without being murdered. Uh, you had Ahmaud Arbery's father saying that when his son went running, that was when he felt the most alive and the most free. And they took all of that away from him. I mean, and Tiffany, you're a professor of law, but you're also a black woman. So I, I, I want to come to you first on this and just ask, how do you think about the law and its role in really protecting bodily autonomy for people of color? Oh, Erin, this is, this is such an important topic. I'm really glad we're discussing it today. Um, 
And I, I have my own internal dissonance in thinking about the sentence against uh, the convicted killers, Ahmad's convicted killers. Um, we should be specific that it was life without the possibility of parole for the father and the son. And that's really meaningful. Um, that just has not happened historically in talking about individuals convicted of killing black bodies, right? Um, so I think it's important. I think it's historical. I think that sentence matters. Um, but I've also had this sort of 180 personal enlightenment, I'll say, after my time as a prosecutor and just understanding how the criminal legal system is so set up to be racially um, unfair and biased against Black people, particularly, um, and thinking about the decarceral movement versus the abolition movement. So the abolition movement, movement is get rid of um, jails, essentially, right? No one should be going to jail. We've got to figure out a better way than the punitive prong of the criminal legal system. The decarceral movement is, is let's reduce the amount of people that we send to jail. I don't personally believe that I'm an abolitionist, but I do support the decarceral movement. But when you think about things like life without parole, do we want the government to say that no, per this person can't be rehabilitated? And this leaves the scope of black bodies, but this just thinks more macro level of what we want our criminal legal system to do. So I want to stay with you, Tiffany, for a second, because we're also seeing plans uh, already in Florida for a ban on all abortion after 15 weeks. No exceptions for rape, no exceptions for incest. Uh, control of women's bodies has been a strategy of authoritarian governments across the world and throughout history. Uh, how does that jab with, with, with America? And, and do you see this as kind of an American authoritarianism? And if so, how do Americans fight back against this? What's happening is that the three branches of American government are in crisis. The court has lost its um, standing in the community as a nonpartisan entity that interprets our constitution. I don't think the public has any faith in the Supreme Court. And they were the essentially the last hope to protect um, abortion rights and reproductive justice in this country, because we can see that this, the, the US Congress is non-functioning at this point. Regardless of who, which party is in, in, in charge or in control, they, they are unable to get things done. And so historically, we looked to the court to bring some semblance of um, function to a partisan, a two-party system, and now we don't even have that anymore. And so um, for women in this country seeking to have abortions or any kind of reproductive, reproductive rights, um, Texas opened the door with this playbook and Mississippi as well has shared their, you know, their playbook. And now states across the country are going to be limiting the rights of women. It's difficult to figure out where oppressed people start, where people fighting for rights begin to dismantle a system that is snatching away things that were baseline for us for so long. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and one one thing that I'm just paying attention to is as we talk about bodily autonomy, is the ways that historically and even in the present, some people have been pushed towards forced sterilization. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer yeah. was sterilized mm -hmm. against her will. There was a whole campaign in multiple states to sterilize indigenous women. At one point, 25 percent in the modern era in the 70s, 25 percent of indigenous women were um you know, forcibly sterilized. And so, you know, people 
call this genocide. And I think it's interesting that the word genocide gets used sometimes in the debate over abortion, but it is not something where people, I mean, just recently there have been forced sterilizations inside um, immigration detention centers, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. so so this is not this is not the past. It's the present, you know, and bodily autonomy is so such a deep and rich and painful topic. Mm-hmm. And I think people are uh, human rights advocates are looking to the global community to find some justice, um, because as you mentioned, Farai, it feels like the United States is moving towards a more author- authoritarian um, form of government. And avenues are being closed to where uh, the snatching away of our rights can be redressed successfully and fairly. Aaron, you just mentioned um, genocide, uh, the conversation of genocide um, through the sterilization of women of color um, and maybe using the global uh, mechanism as a way to get rights for these individuals um, or redress for these individuals. And so it's just, it'll be interesting to see how these all, how these things all play out. So as the resident Georgian, I just have one final thing for you both, uh, because many of our listeners may be tuning into our show on January 17th, which is the official Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday. Dr. King famously said, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Uh, So as a parting, uh, the parting tea here for Ryan Tiffany, what gives both of you hope? Uh, I will say what gives me hope uh, comes from also uh, Dr. King really asking, you know, chaos or community, where do we go from here? And despair is not a foregone conclusion. You know, that we do still have an opportunity, as bleak as things may sometimes seem, there is an opportunity to make a different choice, to choose a different path, to forge a new way forward uh, together uh, as, as Americans in this country. And so that is encouraging me on this holiday, even with everything that we are seeing um, in terms of erosions, attempted erosions to our democracy and our society. So, uh, Farai, I will come to you first, and then Tiffany, you get the last word. There was a really interesting thing that my coach said. I have a executive coach, and she was like, yeah, you know, women of color are just burnt out on having to explain everything to everyone. So when you know, my clients, my other clients say, you know, how do I understand women of color? I'm like, why don't you listen to this radio show? Because uh, they are doing in-group conversations at a mm. high level and they will never have those conversations with you in the same way. And you don't have to blow up their phone and ask for their time and be extractive. And I feel like there's a way that that we can learn from each other. Um, but we also have to realize people are tapped out right now. So, so I feel what gives me hope are ways of deep listening to other people in community. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. Um, and in that same spirit and the spirit of Dr. King, um, love gives me hope. I do mm. believe that love wins in the end. Um, and I think it's it's true love, like an an unending love, not you know this fake uh, the things that we see in the media portrayed as love. I think love wins in the end. And Dr. King was passionate about his belief that love um, conquered all. And you know, in honor of the near the recently departed Bell Hooks and her work on and writing about love, um, I, I just I'm really grateful for that perspective. Um, that I put all of my hope, all of my faith, and all of my trust in love. I think you just can't go mm. wrong with that. Yeah, Dr. King absolutely said that. Uh, hate is too great 
a burden to bear. Well, listen, I definitely have so much love for both of you uh, and for this conversation. For I, I, I really believe that that not only the work of this roundtable, but just the ongoing work here at Our Body Politic really is helping to create the beloved community that Dr. King imagined and envisioned Aww. for us as a democracy. So thank you for that. And thank you for this beloved community that is growing and getting stronger every single day. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you both. This is going to be a love fest. We're going to start the love fest right now. Exactly. Exactly. And thank you to our beloved community uh, of, of our audience, because you all are Absolutely. definitely so much a part of, of uh, what it takes to, to uh, create the, the world that, that we wish to see and, and where we're trying to go. Uh, so we're going to have to leave it there for now. The tea goes so fast around here, but it was really great talking to you, Tiffany, and kicking off my 2022 with you. So good to be here with you, Aaron. Happy New Year. And it was great to do our first roundtable together of the new year, Farai. Aaron, it was such a pleasure, and I look forward to many, many, many more. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Bridget McAllister is our booker and producer. Emily J. Daly and Marisa Arbona Ruiz are our producers. Our associate producer is Natina Bean. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three C's. Today's episode was produced by Lauren Schild and associate produced by Beth Ebish. Archie Moore, Rock Lee, and Harry Evans are sound engineers. We'd also like to once again thank the podcast As She Rises with host, creator, and producer Grace Lynch, executive producer Jenny Kaplan, producers Lindsay Crowderwill and Liz Smith, and managing producer Emily Rudder. Editorial support from Ali Tejeda and Carmen Borca Carrillo. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. <laughs>